If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, for our Old Testament scripture reading. Leviticus is perhaps not the most common book of the Old Testament we might find ourselves in, Uh, and yet it is full of rich instruction, even as we will hear verses this morning that we find our Savior himself speaking, verses, in fact, that we are quite familiar with, uh, that impress upon us our duty to love our neighbor as ourselves. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 to 18. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Rather, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. So we continue working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Here Jesus begins to address the matter of the Sixth Commandment. And the scope of what this commandment impresses upon us regarding our liabilities and our responsibilities. We'll begin reading in verse 17. As you recall, we looked at verses 17 to 20 last week. This morning, we'll give attention to verses 21 to 26. But I'd like us just for review's sake to begin in verse 17. This is our Savior speaking. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps you might be asking, which commandments does Jesus speak of? And here Jesus begins to elaborate on the moral law of God. The moral law which is found and summarized the Ten Commandments. And here he says, beginning in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And so if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, 
lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you that you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let us go before the Lord now and pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word which speaks so clearly. And yet, on account of the hardness of our heart, we confess that we would be blind to the things and deaf to the words that you speak unless your spirit opens our eyes and opens our ears to hear and to see those things that are so clearly given to us in your word. We pray that your spirit now would work in our hearts, that you would shine the spotlight of the word in the darkest and deepest recesses of our hearts to convict us of our sin, to drive us to our Savior, and to teach us to walk the path of righteousness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think there's a tendency that many of us have to treat the Ten Commandments as a sort of game of moral or spiritual bingo. What do I mean by that? When we use the moral law of God, we tend to look at it and treat it as a litmus test, as a standard to evaluate how good we are in with God that day. When we think of the Ten Commandments, if we think of them at all, there is, I think, a propensity in human nature to say, well, here God's law says you shall not murder, and well, looky there, I haven't gone on any killing sprees as of late. Therefore, at least I've got one out of ten. And that's not half bad. And so we mark down the Sixth Commandment as a win. Again, treating the law of God as that bingo card. And then we go on about our daily affairs. And yet, one of the things that Jesus is getting at here as he begins to expound the law is that we have set a really low standard if that's our treatment of the law. This is the very thing that the Pharisees had done. They looked at the bare letter of the law. In one sense, you might say the bare requirement of the law and go, ah, I must be righteous because I have not murdered anybody this week. Therefore, God must love me. What a poor litmus test that is. It's one of the things that Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for. It's what we saw and what we considered last week when Jesus himself says, well, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. One of the things that Jesus is getting at One of the things that Jesus is criticizing is how often we have this tendency to have such a superficial reading of God's law that truly runs only skin deep. You see, for the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' own day, for the religious teachers, for the celebrities and superstars in ancient Israel, they really thought that the moral law of God only applied to their outer works. But here Jesus says God's righteous requirement is something that runs much deeper. God requires a righteousness that probes to the very depths of the human heart. And so for the rest of this chapter, Jesus will begin to dismantle our misconceptions of the law. 
And in doing so, he disarms us. He leaves us naked and exposed to recognize how unrighteous we truly are apart from his saving grace. Here, Jesus begins to expose how superficial our own righteousness really is, that it is only as good as fig leaves that we try to concoct and put together to cover our nakedness and shame. What we need is a soul-cleansing work that only the Spirit of God can provide. So I'd like us to consider two things as we consider the matter of anger and the righteousness of God. First thing I'd like us to do is consider the matter of liability in verses 21 to 22. In other words, we need to ask the question, this is the very thing that Jesus is probing here, what does God's law actually hold us accountable for when he says, thou shalt not murder? What's our responsibility? And that's the second point, our responsibility, verses 23 to 26, to echo the words of the late Francis Schaeffer, how then should we live? If we are liable for certain things and conditions, what is our responsibility in light of our duties and even in light of our own sinfulness? So two things, liability and responsibility. I mean, imagine with me for a moment that you were working for a big corporation, and the boss that you work for is not the best boss that you've ever had. I think we've all been in situations like that. He is inconsistent in so many ways, and in some ways he is very heavy-handed, and yet in others he is incredibly negligent. I remember having a boss when I worked security in college, and I worked the graveyard shift, a boss who would constantly yell and berate his employees, yet it was because he didn't know how to do his job. Whenever I worked shipping and receiving for a warehouse, and Anytime a truck would come down the main line, he would grab his newspaper and his keys and hop in the Jeep and drive off for about 45 minutes and then yell at us for not getting the work done. Heavy-handed and yet lazy. Imagine being in a situation like that, and yet one day you end up showing up to work. It turns out your old boss has been fired, and now the owner of the corporation, his son, stands before you, and he says, look, he says, you've heard a lot of hoopla. You've seen a lot of hypocrisy. Your old boss has done a poor job explaining the expectations of the boss. But my father has sent me to set the record straight. These are the policies, and this is what we mean by having these policies. Here you have the owner's son coming to give a proper exposition of that which has always been on the books, even if it has been poorly understood by your old boss, and even by yourself. That's what our Savior's doing here. Jesus is not implementing any type of new standard in one sense. Rather, what he's doing is he's clearing away these old misconceptions. He's clarifying the original intent and purpose of the law. In particular, he is showing us the very things that we are being held liable for. It's a question of liability. You see the contrast that he gives here uh, in these opening verses, he says, you have heard it was said, but here, I say to you, and he begins to clear away the underbrush. In fact, six times in this sermon, Jesus will address faulty views of specific moral laws. He will begin to show how the older management has misunderstood what has been clearly on the books from the beginning, be it murder or murder. Murder is not a word, by the way. Murder or adultery. 
divorce or oaths, our own personal rights, or even how it is that we are to treat our neighbors. It's Jesus' concern for this next, next section of this great sermon will take us through the end of chapter 5. And yet what I think is so fascinating that when you look at the preachers under the Old Covenant, you look at the prophets under the Old Covenant, how is it that they so often begin their sermons? You read Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. How do they begin? Every, every time they give a proclamation, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord, the, great, the, the creator of heaven and earth has said. It's so interesting here that Jesus never begins by saying, thus says the Lord. Instead, he says something even more powerful. He says, well, you've heard it was said. He begins to describe how the religious teachers have misconstrued and or at least not gone deep enough regarding the probing depths of the nature of the law. He says, you have heard it was said, but instead of saying, thus says the Lord, he says, but I say to you. Here is not one who is speaking uh, of a derivative authority. He's not one who is coming just like another preacher or another theology professor. Here is one who has and bears his own mark of authority. It's the very thing we're going to see when we make it to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus concludes the sermon, the entire crowds are left dumbstruck by the authority that his teaching holds because it is so unlike any of the other religious teachers that they have ever heard. Here is the one who is like Moses and yet one who is greater than Moses. One who does not have to say, thus says the Lord, but one who can simply say, it is I who speaks because here is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Here Jesus comes, him who is the original author of the law, one who speaks by his own authority and not the authority of another. He says, you have heard it was said. And in one sense, Jesus is not correcting this older interpretation, at least regarding this commandment, as if they've gotten it wrong. Rather, that their teaching was simply incomplete. The matter that we see before us is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day have treated God's law too superficially. That's why Jesus has already said, that's why we reread verses 17 to 20, when Jesus speaks to his disciples, when he speaks to the crowds, he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees because their view of what righteousness really is, is too low. It's not that their view here regarding murder is wrong per se, but it's half-baked. It is incomplete. It is insufficient. It does not go far enough. The scope of the sixth commandment runs much deeper than simply our outer works. And here Jesus begins to show how it extends to the very words that come from our heart and even the anger that festers in our very soul. Where the deepest thoughts, attitudes, and affections are put under the spotlight of the probing law of the Lord. Jesus here begins to argue from the lesser to the greater. Again, question of liability. What are you to be held accountable to before the church courts here and now? As Jesus stands before a religious people, 
What are the things that you are to, are, are, what are, what can you be brought up on charges, so to speak, for? What are you held responsible or liable for? Is it simply for the fact of not having murdered anybody this week? Or does it go deeper? And here Jesus says it's not just murderous works, but these murderous words. It's not simply something that you're to be responsible for at the end of time. This is a responsibility. Now, I say to you, Jesus says, that if you call your brother an idiot, you'd be held accountable. If you insult your brother, you'd be held accountable to the church courts. It's the very thing that we saw when we read Leviticus chapter 19. You're not to go around as a slanderer or a talebearer. You're not to hold a grudge in your heart against your neighbor. Rather, you should reason frankly with him. In terms of godly confrontation, what is it that you do with your anger? You know, just as a quick sidebar, we have to recognize here, Jesus is not condemning all anger. The Bible itself says that God is angry. The Bible itself, I would commend to you, calls us to be angry about a great deal many things. Things that we would call righteous anger. There are things that should properly anger us, be it the proliferation of wickedness in the world or the persecution of the righteous. But that's not what Jesus is addressing here. Jesus is addressing those particular grievances where we hold grudges against somebody else. Again, it's a question of liability. What are we held guilty for in the eyes of of the Lord. What is it that truly constitutes murder? What is the scope of the sixth commandment? Is it simply the physical act of murder? Or does it go further? You know, one of the things I really love about living in Oregon here, particularly in this kind of rural-ish part of Oregon, is how few drivers there are. It is a great relief after having lived in Chicago for four years in Philadelphia for four years. Because I think there are fewer things that light my fuse quicker, and it is a short fuse, than heavy traffic and careless drivers. You hear all these stories and these incidents of road rage. It happens in the news so frequently. Somebody gets cut off, and the person who has been the offended party ends up driving down and ramming the car of the one who has cut him off, gets out of the car, and in a moment of passionate rage, murders the man in cold blood. And of course, we hear those stories, and we go, oh, that's murder. That, that's murder. You should go to jail for that. But when it comes to the eyes of the Lord, it's, that's not the only thing that constitutes murder. Murder. So often, the things that we say, the hand signals that we give in our fits of fury, are also considered murderous in the eyes of the Lord. Look at what Jesus says. Whoever insults his brother is going to be held liable to the church courts. That's what he means by the council. In other words, we're to be held accountable for the things that we say before the saints, even in this very life. And yet Jesus goes on and intensifies the statement. It says, and the man who not only insults his brother, but says to his brother, you fool, you are guilty of murder, and you are liable to the fires of hell for all eternity. 
So with that word there, it's the word, if you have an older translation, it just keeps the kind of Aramaic phrase intact. Raka means something like airhead. And I can promise you that probably 98% of the people in here have said things much worse than airhead and talking about people that they do not like. If there's anything that Americans are great at, it's coming up with creative insults. And yet we see that the spotlight of God's Word shines upon the things that we say and says that is murder and you are liable to the wrath of God for all eternity. For any of us who's ever been on I-5 more than 15 minutes, I think understands the very things that I'm saying. Did you call somebody an idiot in traffic today? According to the moral law of God, it's more than a traffic ticket that you owe. You forfeited your very soul. I need to be very clear here. Jesus goes to great lengths in this sermon, both here and elsewhere, to talk about the glories of heaven and the new world that is to come. Might I suggest that nobody speaks more about heaven than our Savior. This is actually how he began his sermon. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's great blessings, the beatitudes of the new creation as we have been ushered into a kingdom of grace where we are made citizens not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of His mercy. That He has made, made us partakers of the inheritance that is to be found in the kingdom of grace, a kingdom that will one day give way to a kingdom of glory when sin and death will finally be undone. We might say that, however, though Jesus speaks more of heaven than anyone else, He also speaks more of hell than anyone else in Scripture. It is a very real warning. Nobody preaches on hell as much as Jesus did. And these are things that we need to take seriously. (coughs) Excuse me. Read Second Chronicles chapter 33. So the chronicler recounts to us the deeds of that wicked king Manasseh. One of the things that Manasseh was most famous for, in fact notorious for, was that he would cause the children of Israel to pass through the fire as they were offered in sacrificial flame to the god Molech. The valley into which they were cast and murdered was known as the valley of Hinnon, where by Jesus' day, according to one commentator, was then known as the Valley of Gehenna. An utterly wicked act. Well, here we see it seems that Jesus is appropriating that same image to describe the eternal fate, not just of the child murderers, to demonstrate that they will reap what they sow, what they have done to their progeny. But now Jesus begins to intensify and claim that it is not just the rapists and child murderers who will suffer the flames of hell, but also the one who is guilty of calling his neighbor a fool or any other combination of four-letter words. 
Matthew Henry, in commenting on this passage, and if you don't have Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible, I'd, I commend it to you. He writes this, he says, Malicious slanders are a poison that kills secretly and slowly. And we will be called to give account for everything that spews forth from our mouths, be it in public or in private. And when we recognize the scope that the sixth commandment bears upon us, we are left with no choice but to toss out our moral bingo card and think that we will ever score one single point of righteousness in the eyes of the one in whom there is no sin. It's the very point of the psalmist as he writes in Psalm 130, O Lord, if you would but mark one of our iniquities against us, O Lord, who could stand? We see here the reason why he says that, because this is the kind of righteousness that the law requires. A law that condemns not only our outer works, but our inner affections and thoughts and feelings. No wonder when Paul, in surveying the landscape of human history, will take a step back and says that all have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness and glory of God. With news like that, it should lead us to despair. How do we respond to that when we already stand condemned for the things that we have said, for the insults that we have hurled, for the grudges that we have bore against friends and family alike, not to mention our own enemies? How should we then live? If this is the standard of righteousness, what is to be done? And here we see Jesus beginning to map out what true and real repentance looks like and the one who recognizes his own estate of sin and misery. Here he maps out our responsibilities and instructs us in how to walk the path of life. For those who have strayed off the straight and narrow, this is what it looks like to get back on the main road. You see that here in verses 23 to 26. Jesus really maps out two particular things that we are called to do. First, we see in verses 23 and 24, and that's the matter of repentance. Again, there is nothing new here. These are things that Moses himself had taught. Jesus simply affirms and reconfirms that which had already been taught. That we are called to confess our sins. And yet, how many of us treat repentance as such a light thing? It becomes so easy when it comes time to confess our sins of speaking in the passive voice, in vague generalities, where we treat repentance as more of a general unease at the general things that we have done wrong, rather than the Confession of particular sins, particularly. How many of us treat repentance as a little more than simply confessing our sins to a pillow late at night? Or if we've caused damage to somebody around us, we try to take as little blame as is possible. We go, oh, mistakes were made, things were said. Well, who made the mistakes? 
Who said them? What mistakes are there that were said? We never own up to the the damage that we had done. And Jesus here speaks of the righteousness that is required. A heartfelt repentance. He calls us to a radical repentance to own up to what we have done where there's not a hint of passivity to be done here. Look at verse 23. He says essentially you're on your way to church, as it were, and you go to to drop your offering off in, in the collection box there in the back of the church. And, and while you're on your way, you remember that somebody has something against you. First, we should note this. Jesus is not simply saying you're on your way to drop off the offering and then you remember that you have something against somebody else. Although that's true enough that you should go and make it right. No, Jesus is saying here, no, you on your way, and you remember somebody has something against you. There's a radical, proactive sense in which it is your responsibility as a citizen of heaven to make things right and not simply to wait for the other person to come to you. Jesus says, before you even drop your money in the plate, You have to make things right. Again, Jesus is not telling us to apologize for things that we did not do. In this particular situation, the the, the scenario that Jesus is is sketching out here are those situations that assume that you are, in fact, the guilty party. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 24. Jesus says, go and be reconciled to your brother. Whenever you see that language, be reconciled, it's assuming that that person is the guilty party. You read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for instance, where it says, God is the one who has reconciled us to Himself, therefore be reconciled to God. The guilty party is the one who needs to be reconciled. So when Jesus says, go and be reconciled to your brother, the assumption is you are bringing your, your, your offering to the plate and you recognize somebody has something against you because you have wronged them in one way, shape, or form. It is not the innocent party that needs to be reconciled. It is the guilty party that needs to be reconciled to the person that they have offended. And then Jesus says, only once you have, once you have set the record straight, only once you have made restitution should you then give your gift. I think this is a very important concept to grasp here. Because I think, again, according to human nature, how many of us have treated the collection plate as yet another means at attempting to buy God off. You sin big time during the week. And so what do you do? You write a bigger tithe check. You think, oh, well, I just... God will love me if I, if I pay off. We'll be good. I'll just settle my debts that way. Because there's the nagging conscience that continues to eat away at you. If I just give a little bit more, maybe God will accept me. And yet, what a superficial view of the gospel that is. As if God needs your money. The great turning point in church history, the great turning point in the Reformation came when Martin Luther distinguished the difference between penance and repentance. And for those who try to use the offering plate as a means to buy God off, to alleviate uh, and offer uh, financial sacrifices as it were, 
to God, to try to merit forgiveness, that is penance, and there is no room in Scripture for such a view. The Lord says, I don't delight in sacrifices like that. The offering plate will not buy off God. Isaiah addresses the same problem to Israel in the 8th century. You read Isaiah chapter 1, right out of the gate. That's Isaiah's initial condemnation upon the nation. The Lord says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? What do they mean? I've had enough of your burnt offerings. When you come to appear before me, why are you trampling my courts underfoot? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. It is an abomination to me. I hate it. Why? What is the reason? Why does the Lord hate Israel's offerings? He says this. He says, because your hands are covered with blood. You are murderers and you're treating the offering and the sacrifices like a lucky rabbit's foot without doing the real work that is required in the work of godliness and the path of righteousness. And as we see Jesus showing us the full weight of the law, the guilt with blood that drips from our hands is not simply from an act of homicide, but also hypocrisy, malice, and slander. Israel was guilty of murder. They thought they could bribe God with church attendance and big tithe checks. And we look back on them 3,000 years after the fact and we ask, are we any different than them? It seems that human nature has not changed despite several centuries, millennia, advancements in technologies. The heart continues to assume that it can buy off God in some way, shape, or form. That is not the righteousness that God requires. The righteousness God requires is a repentance. Going to the one whom you have offended and apologizing and seeking to make amends. First you make restitution and then you bring your offering. Everything in its proper order. This is what true spirituality consists in. And you need to act now before it is too late. Jesus now begins to use the legal imagery of a debtor's prison. Of a man who has shortchanged his brother with acts of slander and libel. Jesus says you're going to be held accountable as you're tossed into prison for the things that you have said. And you will not be released till you have paid the very last penny. Jesus' point here. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Act now before it is too late. See, there's nothing new that Jesus is saying here. It's things that you've already seen that the law and the prophets have spoken of. And here Jesus comes to fulfill it. He comes to confirm and validate the very things. He's not coming to relax these commandments, but to show the full weight of the law as it impresses itself upon the duties of the people of God. And yet at the same time, we have to look and say, who here could ever live up to such a perfect standard for all that God requires? As all of us were born dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to accomplish any of these things on our own, and yet we are drawn back time and time again to the good news of the gospel that the very things that God's law requires... He provides 
and His grace. As He gives us His Spirit who enables us to put sin to death and live to righteousness. As He gives His Spirit who washes us thoroughly of our sin, not because of the good works we have done, not because of any acts of penance that we have committed, but of His soul-free and sovereign mercy alone. And yet because He has delivered us, He now calls us to give due diligence to the ways in which we have harmed and wronged not only the Maker of heaven and earth, the ways in which we have wronged our own neighbors. Now the Son of God by nature calls us sons by grace. Now He adopts us into the Beloved. Now He says this is what the standard is. This is where the bar is set. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. If we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, and walking in the light for the Christian means walking in repentance. For those times where we do harbor those murderous grudges and insult our brother, that we are quick to make amends and to seek restitution. That we are quick to show a real heartfelt righteousness that probes beyond the superficial understanding of the law that simply seeks to to, to grasp the sixth commandment as the bare act of killing. Jesus shows that the law provides a scope that guides us along the path of wisdom and righteousness in ways that we have perhaps not even dreamed of it teaching us to do and to walk. Husbands, how do you speak to your wife when nobody else is around? Mothers, how do you speak to your children when you're at home alone with the kids? Kids, how do you speak to your brother or your sister when your parents are away at work? Do you insult them and call them names? According to the righteousness of God, that is a violation of the sixth commandment. It is a form of murder. You might look at me and say, well, pastor, it's not a big deal. People have done far worse than me calling my brother an idiot. Well, perhaps other people have done far worse. But that does not let you off the hook. Because there is a God who will not wink at sin. And here Jesus says very clearly, anyone who calls his brother a fool is liable not only to the human courts, but the courts of heaven itself. The final judgment. You may have never fired a weapon in your life, but yet you could still stand damned to hell for all eternity if you do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's so difficult as we live in a culture that takes great pride in speaking our mind. I think freedom of speech is a great political freedom we have. That does not give us the freedom as citizens of heaven to treat our neighbors and speak of our neighbors like garbage. To insult a family member to his or her face. To spread malicious rumors on a massive text thread. To lie and humiliate somebody on social media. To hurl insults at passers-by on Interstate 5. 
Paul writes to the church of Corinth, echoing these very things, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he goes to list a litany of sins, and we tend to focus on what we would consider the big sins. And they are big. Murder and homosexuality, theft and the like. And yet Jesus adds among that list of sins that not even revilers. It's an old-fashioned word that means the verbally abusive. Not even the verbally abusive will inherit the kingdom of God. Husbands, what you say to your wife behind closed doors matters to God. The things that you say to your children or your employees or your boss matters to God. Our words matter, and God has given us this commandment to train us to repudiate murderous conduct. Not only in the things that we do, but also the things that we say. I want you to see this as a great thing. The Lord loves righteousness, and He wants us to treat others with tender mercy and compassion. Not to speak ill of them, but if there is a real problem, to reason frankly with them. This is a way in which we learn to love our neighbor as ourself. And yet when we look and we see the ways in which we have fallen, we are reminded of the gospel of our Savior, that where sin abounds, grace superabounds. That to those who confess their sins, we have a Savior who is faithful and just, who is eager and willing to pardon and to forgive. And so He calls us to walk in the light of repentance, to seek forgiveness, to make amends for the wrongs that we have done, and so walk in that heartfelt righteousness that God requires all of His children to walk in. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You for Your tender mercy and long-suffering that You've shown to us. We pray that You would teach us to walk in that same tender compassion to others who have sinned against us, even as You've called us to pray to forgive us our debts, even as we have forgiven our debtors. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.